Hello and welcome. Um, this is a podcast slash lecture for my History 327, 1945 to present class. Uh, hi class, hope everybody's doing well. Um, this is going to be a much longer podcast than the last one. That was just me finishing up what I would, wasn't able to cover in class. And now it's going to be a regular podcast. So why don't everybody, I'll give you a second to get to the uh, PowerPoint that I have up on Moodle, and I'll let you get started on slide one. Okay, so today we're talking about the rise of Nixon, pretty much Nixon's first term and also how he gets into office. Now, as I've covered for quite a while now, the 1960s are a time of conflict, and they're a challenge to the status quo. We've been covering the 60s for a couple weeks now, honestly, and today we're going to be talking about one of the other main themes of this class, or something I've mentioned before. Remember, the, the main themes of this class are, number one, the Cold War, number two, civil rights, uh, number three, rise of technology, and the one that I kind of add later, which should be more of number three, but let's call it four, is kind of the downfall of liberalism and the rise of conservatism in the U.S., a new type of conservatism, which really comes in play with Nixon. Nixon is a very, very interesting figure. He's kind of a central figure, uh, somebody who doesn't get a lot of, I don't want to say credit, but not a lot of acclaim nowadays. You're, you're not going to have too many politicians say that they model themselves after Richard Nixon, but he's very influential. Now, because of this conflict and all this uh, challenging in the 1960s, it was only logical that a backlash was going to occur. Remember, not everybody in the 60s was a hippie. Not everybody in the 60s was a civil right crusader. Uh, plenty of Americans felt that, um, you know, they might have sympathies towards women or African Americans or homosexuals or whatever, all these different groups that are um, protesting, but they feel they're going too far. They fear that there are more important things to worry about in the country. Uh, a lot of times they are afraid that these are uh, fronts for communist agitators. So if you skip over to, 19, uh, to the second slide... The, the election of 1968 has a lot of these um, attitudes. Okay, there's a lot of attitudes here, a lot of feeling of this is going to be the backlash. Uh, we talked about how, you know, the last class, last podcast, how the Chicago ride of 68 really demonstrated that, wow, the electorate's a little split. You know, wow... Maybe the civil rights workers have totally lost their mind. Maybe things are a lot worse than they appear. And there's a lot of backlash. There's a lot of backlash. And one of the exemplars of this backlash, the probably the best exemplar of this backlash, is if you go over one slide, you're going to see George Wallace. Uh, George Wallace, seen there, given the OK sign, like, hooray for the Confederacy. Uh, he is a long, 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 long time hard right-winger. Uh, he had been governor of Alabama for quite a while, but his entire political career is based around segregation. Segregation has pretty much been the basis of his career. When he's governor of Alabama, he does things like, uh, you know, stands in front of the University of Alabama to make sure it doesn't get desegregated. And... He's using a lot of the disgust that Southern Democrats feel towards the National Democratic Party, towards people like Johnson, who they felt betrayed him, the, the party by going with the Civil Rights Movement. 
people who are not exactly great with African Americans, not fond of African Americans. Remember, Southern Democrats are pretty much the bulk of the Democratic Party. These white Southern Democrats, they've been they've been lifelong members of the Democratic Party, and they feel that their votes have been taken for granted, both on the uh, congressional level, but also on the voter level. And so Wallace is using some of this disgust among Southern Democrats towards the leftist wing of the Democratic Party, and he feels his own third-party run. Uh, it's called, theoretically, the American Independent Party, uh, better known as the Segregation Party, honestly. Uh, but he's changed his rhetoric. He's not just against segregation. He is a strong anti-hippie, anti-leftist, anti-whatever-the-heck-is-going-on-the-1960s. Um, one of his more famous quotes is that, quote, liberals, long-haired, and intellectuals have run the country for too long. So this idea that it's there, that liberals and intellectuals and, you know, men with long hair, effeminate men, whatever you want to call them, maybe homosexuals, they have controlled the country for too long and they've brought it into ruin. He says that Johnson's uh, policies, the Great Society uh, policies, are emboldening the worst sort of people. He coins a term, which later gets accredited to a lot of other politicians, but the term is welfare queen. Um, Henry, uh, George Wallace is the first one to use the term welfare queen. Uh, he tells a story of, like, there's a woman living in a major city. She has, like, all these different children by different fathers, and she only has children to, to get this welfare check. Do people like this exist? Not really. Not in these sort of numbers. Uh, when it comes to hippies, he says that the hippies and the youth of the country, they're just, they're too dirty, they're too vulgar. We talked about that last class, kind of this backlash against uh, the increased sexuality and vulgarity of the country. He says the only four-letter words that hippies don't know are W-R-O-K and S-O-A-P, work and soap. Uh, that's kind of amusing. Uh, the, the speech that I'm going to have y'all read, it's actually one given in New York City. Um, although his base is in the South, he's not just with Southern Appeal. He is talking across the country. Now, Wallace ultimately does not win this election. That really shouldn't surprise you. Uh, if you go over, you'll see uh, his little sign, you know, Cracker Power. That's an Nabisco logo. Really speaking to, he thinks like the white, uh, lower class maybe lower on the socioeconomic scale, people that they feel got screwed over by the Civil Rights Movement. Like I said, Wallace does not win. Uh, as far as we can gather, his plan is maybe to split the vote long enough so it can go to the House, uh, possibly he could get some sort of good appointment out of it. I don't think he really thought he was ever going to become president. Maybe he could be spoiler, but he's taking votes away from the Democrats, which were not in the greatest position after 1968, uh, after the... Uh, Chicago Convention. But he does carry a lot of southern states. In a couple slides, uh, you'll see the Electoral College map. Uh, a couple of deep south southern states go for Wallace. Now, not enough go for Wallace uh, to really sway the vote one way or the other. Had he not been in here, they would have probably gone toward Humphrey, but Humphrey would have not gotten the Electoral College votes. But what Wallace does do is set the stage for what was going to come later in the South. It's evident that a lot of the Southern population, who are pretty much stalwart Democrats, felt alienated by their party. And just like uh, Lyndon Johnson warned, 
maybe they're about to go over to the Republican Party. Now, if you go over one slide, you will see that Richard Nixon is also capitalizing on this, not just in the South, but throughout the entire country. He is really capitalizing on this kind of backlash, not just civil rights, but really everything. Pretty much everything that got on the 60s, he's viewed as the response to it. Now, as you recall, Nixon had been vice president for quite a while. Uh, he was vice president under Eisenhower. Uh, he loses the 1960 election to, uh, to Kennedy. Also, he loses the gubernatorial election of California in 1962. And pretty much after that, he had been kind of quiet in politics. I don't want to say he's completely out of politics. He was giving speeches to like different Republican groups. Uh, he's biding his time. He doesn't really do anything in 1964 with Goldwater. He pretty much stays out of that one. But Nixon, I haven't really talked too much about his background. Uh, he's a weird guy. He's a, he's a fascinating guy. I know a lot of Nixon scholars who like, you know, go over to the Nixon Library every chance they get. Uh, he's, a, he's a fascinating character, I'll just say that. Uh, his background, he grows up pretty, he's like a Quaker family, um, fairly humble, middle-ish class, never the coolest kid on the planet. Like, uh, when he's in college, he starts his own fraternity because the cool fraternity wouldn't let him in. Uh, the main thing you need to know about Nixon, if I could describe Nixon's political career in one word, it's anti-communist. Um, he gets his start, like, during the you know, McCarthy stuff, kind of comes to the national stage. He's seen as a young firebrand. You know, young, you can say a lot of things about Richard Nixon, but you could never accuse him of being a communist or a communist sympathizer. In fact, it's because of this reputation that Eisenhower even picks him to become his vice president. Remember, Eisenhower was a bit of a moderate. Uh, he was offered the nomination by both parties, in essence. And so he picks Nixon because he's Mr. Anti-Communist. Now, ironically, something you do need to know about Nixon early on is a really weird speech he has to give in 1952. Because if you go over one slide, you will see Richard Nixon and his beloved dog, Checkers. Now, believe it or not, that dog is a scandal. Uh, during the 1952 election, it came out that Richard Nixon had a slush fund that was filled with illegal contributions. And there's rumors that, like, you know, he and his family were living high on the hog based upon illegal contributions. Now, to combat this, Richard Nixon gives one of the most famous yet weirdest speeches of all time where pretty much he defends his family's honor. Uh, he, for instance, he's like, you know, all right, by the way, here I am going to do a horrible Richard Nixon impersonation, which I probably won't keep up long, but I got to do it. You know, people say my, my wife, Patricia, she, uh, she wears a fur coat, but I can assure you she doesn't wear a fur coat. She wears a, let me give the exact wording here, a good Republican cloth coat. The idea that, you know, he's not buying his wife fancy mink coats, just good Republican cloth coats. This is a weird turn of phrase. Uh, likewise, he does say, you know, I did take... Okay, I'm going to drop the Richard Nixon accent. He's like, you know, I did take some legal trade contributions. It was a puppy. They gave some illegal a donor, illegally gave us a puppy. We named it Checkers. It's a black and white uh, cocker spaniel. My daughters love him. And say what you want, we're going to keep the dog. This is just political genius. You're accused of, like, a pretty serious uh, violation, and your response is, Look at this puppy. Oh, look at the puppy. He's a puppy. Oh, look at the puppy. And it works. Richard Nixon is kept on the ticket. 
Now, Richard Nixon is not charismatic. I, I can't iterate that enough. He's not a naturally good-looking person. He's not the best with crowds. I mean, he likes crowds, but he's kind of awkward in them. Uh, he's he's a weird choice of a candidate, but he has pretty effective language. If you go over, you're going to see probably the one term used in 68 to describe Nixon better than anything else. He describes himself as the law and order candidate. Now, this is actually pretty akin to something that uh, uh, George Wallace is saying. In fact, I believe George Wallace actually coins the term law and order. But Richard Nixon really gets on that. Basically, Nixon says in his speeches that, uh, you know, America's a pretty uh, chaotic place. There's Our cities are falling apart. There's pollution all over the place. Uh, people are agitated. You know, our, our, our military is is uh, weakened. It, it's, he's painting a very bleak picture of what the country looks like. Uh, pretty much it's been overrun by liberals or whatever. Uh, you know, the, the inmates are running the asylum type of deal. Uh, all these young people and agitators are ruining the country. And he claims, I'm going to bring back law and order. The idea being that he's not against these progresses or, or acts. He's just against people acting so radically about them. Now, he claims to speak for, this is actually a pretty important term, the silent majority. He says a majority of Americans are not protesting in the street, which is true. Most Americans are protesting in the street. But he goes it a bit further. He says that most Americans, they're horrified by what they see on the news. You know, they're horrified to see the hippies. They're horrified to see the vulgarity. You know, they might be okay with African Americans, but if they see things like the Black Panthers, you know, they're scared of that. They think it's overly violent. And he says, I am going to bring law and order for the sake of the silent majority. The good Americans who are too busy going to work, raising their kids, paying their taxes, defending the country and the military. He's going to be doing this. And he's really painting a picture of America as a country on the verge of total ruin. And the Chicago riots against the Democratic Party in 68 actually help him. They help him a lot because it's like, look... I'm the party, the Republicans are the party of, like, you know, sanity and, and keeping stable. And look at those wackadoodle Democrats. Oh, my gosh, they're protesting in the street while those damn long hairs. Now, Nixon also has something called the Southern Strategy. Skip over one slide. Uh, you'll see Richard Nixon in Georgia. Uh, Dixieland is Nixonland. I, I think they thought that was going to rhyme better than it doesn't. Uh it's an appeal towards Southern whites who feel isolated from the Democratic Party because of civil rights, honestly. Remember, the rank and file of the Democratic Party is primarily Southern, and they feel taken for granted. They feel isolated. Now, George Wallace is trying to use that for his own appeal. Uh, Nixon's going at it another way because there's a bit of a problem. The problem is, still at this point, the Republican Party has been seen as the party of African-Americans. Now, this does change a little bit in 1964. Uh, Jackie, Jackie Robertson famously leaves the party because of Goldwater's candidacy. But, I mean, Nixon himself is a member of the NAACP, if you can believe it. He has NAACP uh, sympathies, membership. He claims to be a lifelong member, which is interesting. Uh, so the trick is, how do you appeal to Southern Democrats who are upset with the Democratic Party because of what they did about civil rights without alienating your African-American base? Even though they're not the biggest population, they've been pretty steady Republicans. 
African Americans have been pretty steady Republicans for quite a while now. And Nixon has to figure out a way to do it. And the way he does it is by changing his language. Uh, he doesn't explicitly state things like, uh, I'm against civil rights, but he says that, uh, you know, the federal government shouldn't be enforcing stuff like that. Uh, it's, it's too anti-big government. He uses an anti-big government message instead of an anti-civil rights message. Uh, this is still a very contentious issue. It's not cemented by Nixon by any means, but I do want you to understand that the so-called switch between um, parties of the modern era, the idea that, you know, Southern people go from voting primarily Democrat to voting primarily Republican, African Americans go from voting primarily Republican to voting Democrat, it's not a one-day thing. Um, it's, it's a weird... It, it's a disservice to call it a switch. Uh, very few members of either party, like who are elected officials, switch parties. Most of them actually stay with the one they already they start out with. Uh, that's because seniority means everything in politics, particularly with Congress. You need to be uh, have a little bit of seniority before you get plum appointments. And aside from Strom Thurmond, who was a Democrat, he did the longest filibuster in U.S. history against uh, a Civil Rights Act in 1940. No, he ran for president in 40. Doesn't matter. Look, he does switch to the Republican Party. Uh, pretty much that's it. He's, he's the only person with a big, good bit of seniority to switch parties. And this is a developing issue. It's not really cemented until Reagan in 1980, but we're going to talk about Reagan later on. Uh, the main thing that Nixon wins upon, though, is his quote-unquote secret plan to end the war in Vietnam. But he's not going to say directly what it is on the campaign trail. He says to do so would undermine the president. Um, you know, it, it's kind of like a New Deal thing where, like, you got to elect me before I'll tell you what it is. But he hints it won't be abandoning South Vietnam. He's not, he's, it's not going to be a total pullout, he says, but he's kind of cagey on the details while he's running for office. Uh, if you go to the next slide, you're going to see the Electoral College map. It's a pretty interesting election, not going to lie. It's a fairly interesting election because, as you see, um, and I mentioned before, Wallace does indeed get the Deep South. He gets uh, his home state of Alabama, he gets Georgia, he gets Mississippi, he gets Arkansas, and yeah, he gets Louisiana. Uh, another time where Louisiana votes for not the great person. But as you notice, he's only getting 46 Electoral College votes. Now, the popular vote's actually fairly close. Uh, Hubert Humphrey comes within about uh, half a million votes of winning the popular vote, but because it's America, popular vote doesn't matter. What does matter is Electoral College votes. So as you can see, Richard Nixon has a, quite an edge in that. He's got uh, 301 Electoral College votes to Hubert Humphrey's uh, 106, uh, 191. Even if Humphrey had gotten Wallace's votes, it wouldn't have really meant anything. Nixon would have still won. As you can see, Nixon gets pretty much everything. I mean, Nixon gets Florida. Nixon gets the Upper South. You know, he, he's got South Carolina, North Carolina. He's got Virginia. He gets California, which is not surprising because that's he's a former, you know, pr uh, not governor, but he's from that state initially. Uh, pretty much Humphrey only gets the Northeast um, and Union Territory, but, you know, Nixon even gets Ohio. So that's a, that's a pretty big win for Richard Nixon. Now, this bodes ill for the Democratic Party. 
Uh, the shift that Johnson had warned about has started to happen. Nixon has won southern states. He wins Florida. He wins, you know, fairly southern states in 68. He's going to win even more in 72. So now, switch slides, Richard Nixon is now president. Look at him. Ah, there he is. Oh, there's old Tricky Dick. Uh, under the presidential uh, seal during his inauguration. Uh, as president, he does some stuff which is pretty interesting. I'm going to talk about his domestic policy kind of briefly, and then I'm going to go extensively into his foreign policy. Although Nixon campaigned as a conservative, a lot of what he did in his office was more liberal than expected. Uh, he is really arguing that the federal government needs to get smaller. He, he's he, His blanket term is a new federalism. He says, you know, we're going to make a new federalism where the federal government is not as powerful. It's all about the state governments. Uh, good example of this is in education. Nixon claims he's given control of education back to the states. Individual states could set their own standards for education. He claims that's what needs to be done. But there's a caveat. Because the federal government was the one that controlled the financing. They had block grants. In order to get the grants, states had to comply to certain federal guidelines. So weirdly enough, although Nixon is saying it's about giving power to the states, without the federal money, the states can't do much of anything. And if the federal government controls the money, it's ironic, but uh, they're the ones in control. And it's also kind of a paradox, because in order to reduce federal power, Nixon grows the power of the presidency. That's kind of another major trend here. I've mentioned that the federal government has grown in power and authority, so has the office of the president. Uh, the president has a much more singular figure now, and it's developing throughout the course of this class, than he's ever been in history. Uh, part of that was the Gulf of Tonkin, you know, that the president can now just send troops without getting a declaration of war. But the president has been given more and more power, and Nixon's definitely part of that. Still, a lot of Nixon's changes felt like the old federalism. Uh, for instance, if you go over to the next slide, in 1970, he makes the Environmental Protection Agency. It passes the Clean Air Act, uh, which cuts down on pollution. Now, he does this theoretically to help businesses. He says it's to help the country, help you know, stop the chaos. Uh, I just noticed in the background of that picture, that is Teddy Roosevelt charging up San Juan Hill. That, that's a fun picture to have in the background. Uh, Nixon is still weary of the environmentalist. Uh, e uh, no, environmentalist. There we go. That's the word. Uh, he feels that environmentalists are anti-prosperity. They're anti-capitalism. They're anti-business. Uh, he, he thinks that the, the edge of environmentalism is crazy people. So even though he's doing something, probably the most powerful environmental act the U.S. government has ever done, and actually he does this through executive order, it's not even a law, it, it's still kind of a, it's not fully environmental. He's still wary of the fringe. Remember, he is the law and order candidate. He is distrustful of people on the edges of the politics on the left. Uh, it's also the not the best funded organization. The EPA has got a lot of power, but he doesn't finance it very well. Um, if you have a lot of authority and no money or no way to really enforce what your authority is, you're not really an authority. And the EPA is kind of like that. It could also be argued fairly strongly and, you know, I, I think it'd be argued very persuasively that most of what Nixon does is to keep liberals off his back. Uh, so he can focus on stuff that's more important to him, particularly foreign policy. 
Now, as Nixon promised throughout the campaign, he had, quote-unquote, a secret plan to end the war in Vietnam. Remember one slide? He calls it Vietnamization. Vietnamization. In essence, it's reducing the number of American troops and then increasing the number of South Vietnamese troops. Basically, they have to take their place. He says, we're giving control of the conflict back to the South Vietnamese. So reduce the number of American uh, soldiers, increase the number of Vietnamese. Uh, there are problems getting the number of soldiers and the training and the equipment for the South Vietnamese. Uh, yeah. Also, 1969, I do need to mention Ho Chi Minh dies, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. The real problem has to do with Laos and Cambodia. Now, as you can see on that map, you can see OS at the top. That's Laos. And below it, you can see Cambodia. Now, America, as we said earlier when the Vietnam War started, had to stay within the boundaries of South Vietnam. They were not really allowed to go up into North Vietnam that often. Now, the North Vietnamese would do all sorts of crazy junk. They would, you know, the Ho Chi Minh Trail for the Tet Offensive was right through Laos and Cambodia. And so Nixon secretly, secretly starts ordering the bombing of Laos and Cambodia. He actually even invades Cambodia for a little bit, but doesn't let the American people know about it. Pretty much he's lying to the American people, but that's about it. They're, American people are the only ones in the dark about this. Um, why is he lying about this? Well, because that'd be, a, that'd be theoretically an act of war, maybe even a war crime. Uh, the idea that Nixon is doing this without congressional approval or congressional knowledge or the knowledge of the American people, kind of a violation of what the president can and can't do. Now, who all does know about this? Well, the Russians know about it. Uh, the Chinese know about it. The American soldiers doing the bombing and invasion kind of know about it. Uh, the Vietnamese know about it. Uh, the Cambodians sure as hell know about it. They know they're getting bombed. And it's a lot of bombs. It's a lot, a lot of bombs. And when word comes out about this in 1970, there are a wave of protests throughout the United States. Uh, there's a spree of new protests. Basically, people think that Nixon's gone too far. The war's gone out of hand. The U.S. is being far too aggressive, far too imperialist. One of the biggest early protests, probably the most tragic one, is in Kent State. Go over one slide. Uh, Kent State is a small regional university in Ohio. It's actually, at the time period, it's kind of similar to Nichols. I want to say the population of the time period of the school is about, you know, seven, 8,000. Uh, this is not Ohio State. This is not, you know, one of the bigger schools in Ohio. It's, it's, it's a regional university. And so some of the students start protesting. They start protesting uh, the bombing of Cambodia. They think that Nixon's gone too far. This is kind of an anti-war protest. And the National Guard, the Ohio National Guard, is training. It's their weekend. They're nearby. And the protest gets large. You're having people who aren't students coming in. In fact, the girl in the picture, she's actually a high school student who came in for the day. She is protesting the war, and it looks like the protest is getting out of hand. The National Guard is called in to kind of keep control. This upsets the protesters and the students. They feel like this is an overly aggressive action. Uh, they get a little bit more defiant. Uh things happen, and basically the National Guard fires upon the protesters, killing four of them. This happens on May 4th, 1970. Which happened, happened to be my dad's birthday. He said it was the worst 20th birthday he ever had. Was hearing about what happened at Kent State. My dad was not at Kent State. I should mention that. My dad was at LSU. 
but you know, he, he he said he heard about all that happening on his birthday, and that was not a not a good birthday to have. Uh, likewise, two days after this, uh, in Jackson State, which is in Mississippi, it's a HBCU. Uh, two students are killed during a similar protest whenever the police open fire upon them. So this does not look good. You know, if U.S. soldiers and cops are opening fire on protesters and killing them, and by the way, these are unarmed protesters, it doesn't look that great. Also, I should mention morale is not exactly great in the Vietnam for U.S. troops. Uh, by reducing the number of U.S. troops, the... the the gains of the troops feel they've made have been, are being lost. They feel that they're losing territory and villages to the North Vietnamese. Uh, likewise, the North Vietnamese feel emboldened because they just need to bide their time and maybe the U.S. is going to pull out. Um, troops start refusing to do missions. Uh, fragging becomes weirdly common. Uh, fragging is basically where they throw the grenade into the sleeping quarters of an officer that they don't care for, so they don't have to do the, uh, whatever the officer wants. Uh, heroin use actually gets really high. About one-sixth of all U.S. troops uh, become addicted to heroin in this time period. Uh, there are opium fields nearby. They, they're not doing a lot of fighting or s- stuff. Discipline gets kind of lax, and heroin use goes way up. So that's not going great domestically, but still Nixon feels that the anti-communists are on the run. He feels that he could do something, and he does do something. Uh, if you go over one slide, you'll see detente. Uh, detente is a very, very, very important term. It's a French word that means like relaxation or ease of tensions. Basically, when you're when you're you know you've been at you've been at ten, you've been all amped up, and all of a sudden you start easing it down. You start dialing back. That's called detente. And this changes fundamentally how the U.S. is dealing with communism in the Cold War. Because early in the Cold War, Truman and the other early Cold Warriors, they see communism as this monolithic entity. They see communists, no matter what country it's in, is something to be feared. All communist is bad communist. But in reality, Nixon sees things a little bit differently. The fact is that despite 1949, Russia and China did not get along. Like, at all. Like, at all, at all. It's not great. <laughs> uh, in fact, in 1969, the uh, Chinese People's Liberation Army, they start having skirmishes, border skirmishes with the Red Army. Uh, if you don't know, Russia and China have a fairly long border that's only broken up by Mongolia, and then I believe it, it comes together on the other side. And so now that there is, like, skirmishes between North... China and South Russia, that sounded really wrong, China and Russia, Nixon feels maybe these two sides can be played against each other. You know, maybe maybe communism's not one big monolithic entity. Maybe you could take it at a country-by-country basis. Maybe you could treat them as separate rivals. Now, only Nixon could get away with this. Any other president, any other politician who said that all not all communism isn't necessarily the same and we can negotiate with communists individually, would be accused of being a communist sympathizer. But you can't do that with Nixon, because Nixon is the embodiment of anti-communism. That's his whole thing. It's like, um, I don't know. Uh, okay, like, who's the... Let's say The Rock is the embodiment of machismo. Uh, you know, R- Dwayne Johnson, The Rock... 
he is the most masculine person on the planet. If if The Rock does it, it can't be feminine. It is masculine. So if The Rock's like, hey, I'm going to be painting my fingernails and my toenails, nobody would say that's feminine. It's like, well, no, it's The Rock. You know, if The Rock can do it, it's masculine. That's kind of what the deal is with Nixon. Now, Nixon's partner in this, if you go over one slide, is one Henry Kissinger, here looking a million years old. Fun fact, Richard Nixon is not alive, but Henry Kissinger is. Henry Kissinger is 96 years old and is somehow alive. I don't know how that happened. Uh, Nixon's big partner in all this is Kissinger. Kissinger becomes Nixon's national security advisor. He later becomes secretary of state. Kissinger is willing to deal with this. Uh, Kissinger is actually, I believe he's from Germany. He flees during World War II. Um, he, he comes to the States, gets an education. Uh, Richard Nixon, let me try to do my, uh, sorry, let me try to do my Henry Kissinger impersonation. He always had very low voice. He talked like this, you know, Mr. Pre no, well, that's a bad accent, but like very low voice. I have bad news. Henry Kissinger. <coughs> now, Kissinger is willing to go along with detente. He's willing to negotiate with all these communist countries. He's like, you know, maybe things could happen. And in 1971, Kissinger goes to Pakistan. He's like, hey, I got to go to Pakistan. I'm going to do some, you know, business for, for Nixon. As soon as he gets there, he's like, oh, my goodness. Oh, my tummy hurts. Uh, I must have had some bad Asian food, and it's just, oh, my, I'm, I'm having intestinal duress. I'm not going anywhere for a couple days. Uh, reporters who are on this junket, y'all just stay at home. Go, go visit the pretty parts of Pakistan. You know, I, mean, I don't know. Go, go see some sights. And so he's able to get the reporters to go away. It's a total lie. Kissinger's fine. Uh, by getting the reporters to go away, he's actually able to fly secretly to China. In China, he meets with Chairman Mao and other Chinese leaders. This is a big coup. For the first time in 22 years, since 1949, the U.S. is talking with China. Remember, in 1949, the U.S. said that Taiwan is a real China, and we're not, we don't recognize the legitimacy of China. Now, they're talking. And Nixon claims this as a major foreign policy victory. He says, this is big, this is good, this is wonderful for the country, this is great. Um, you know, China and America are talking again. And it sets the stage for one of the most interesting bits of political theater, if you go over one page. Nixon goes to China himself. Nixon would go to China himself. In early 1972, Nixon goes to China. Now, this freaks the Russians out. Uh, the Russians are convinced that Nixon is having secret negotiations with the Chinese. Maybe they're going to have a big alliance. Uh, Russia is terrified because they don't like China very much. They fear that China is uh, kind of a young pup that should submit to the Russians' authority as the chief communist. Likewise, China thinks that Russia is incompetent, and they should yield to China being the main communist power in third world countries. Uh, the Republicans back home are also freaked out by this move because they feel that Nixon is possibly selling out Taiwan. Now, nobody could ever accuse him of being a communist, though, because he's freaking Richard Nixon. Anything Richard Nixon does cannot be accused of being of communist. Uh, while in China, Richard Nixon gets... Uh, couple of deals done. Uh, they, you know, they start doing some trading relationships. Uh, they say that, you know what, Taiwan's its own separate entity, kind of. It's the one China policy. It's still a very contentious issue. 
China and Taiwan and the U.S., but he kind of settles it over a little bit. Uh, the big deal is that he gets um, diplomatic relations again. For the first time in over two decades, China and the U.S. have diplomatic relations. They decide to exchange embassies. This is a big deal. Uh, Chinese goods maybe can come to American markets and vice versa. You know, there's still those billion consumers. And even though they're communists, they can still buy things from here and there. Now, there's tons of political theater. If you go over one page, you'll see, like, ooh, there's Richard Nixon at the Great Wall. Uh, there's pictures of, you know, Richard Nixon having tea with Chairman Mao. Uh, Nixon using chopsticks, like you see in the first picture. That's just fun stuff. It's all political theater. It's such political theater. And also, it is an election year. It's 72. And now you're seeing something that nobody ever thought they would ever saw, saw, see. And China was nice, but that wasn't the real goal. The real goal, as you'll see next slide, was to set up a trip for Richard Nixon to go to Russia, to go to Moscow. Basically, Nixon's hope was that the Soviets would get so jealous, they would, owe, they would demand their own meeting with the U.S. Uh, to keep the U.S. from getting too buddy-buddy with China. And Nixon knows this. Nixon's like, hey, if I negotiate with the Chinese, be cool with them, Russia's going to come to the table. And they do. It totally works. In May of 72, only three months after Nixon goes to China, Nixon goes to Moscow. Uh, there he meets with the Soviet general secretary, uh, that's Brezhnev at this time. Sorry to my Russian listeners, I cannot pronounce that. Brezhnev? Brezhnev. Brezhnev. Yeah, something like that. Uh, Nixon had indeed been to Russia a couple times before. You have like the, you know, the kitchen cabinet debate, all that good stuff like that, the kitchen debates. Um, but still, for a president, I mean, he's like vice president at that time period when he goes in the 50s. Now he's a president. And a president has gone to Russia to sign a nuclear arms reduction treaty. It's called SALT, Strategic Arms Limitations Treaty. This limits the number of nuclear weapons. Basically, it's saying, hey, let's reduce the number of nuclear weapons. Now, Russia's actually okay with this because Russia has less nuclear weapons than the Americans. But still, to reduce the number of nuclear weapons could be seen as soft. It could be seen as something that's, like, okay with communism. But it's Richard Nixon. He can't do anything that's pro-communist. That's his entire career. Um, also, in exchange, the U.S. would uh, offer Russia cheap uh, grain. Uh, Russia had always had a problem feeding itself. Uh, sizable percentage between SALT-1 and SALT-2, there's, there's another treaty that comes out. Basically, America offers a lot of grain to Russia at very reduced rates. Like, I think uh, it's like one-fourth of all grain or all wheat from the U.S. goes to Russia at cost. Um, and the U.S. gives subsidies to farmers. Okay, a deal like that, like, hey, now we're going to be feeding communists, would not fly if it's anybody else. If a Democrat had done this in this time period, honestly, if anybody other than Richard Nixon had done this, he would have been called a communist. He or she would have been called a communist. But it's Nixon. Yes, it's all political theater, and when Brezhnev comes to the White House in the next year, it's such political theater, but it's looking good. Detente, they're easing escalations. Maybe we're not all going to die in the Cold War. And that's looking really good. Not only that, go over one slide, the real issue is Vietnam, and Nixon has been negotiating with North Vietnam for a while now. Uh, Ho Chi Minh does indeed die in 1969. He never gets to see his uh, Vietnamese unification. But there's a hope that maybe with the death of Ho Chi Minh, the Viet Cong in North Vietnam would kind of de-escalate. Also, the problem is North Vietnam knows about American de-escalation. 
they're aware that they're the number of U.S. troops are kind of being reduced. So these peace talks are going on in Paris for years, and North Vietnam has no real sense of urgency. Uh, they're willing to procrastinate. They figure if they procrastinate long enough, the South will get weak enough. Uh, the South Vietnamese are not really coming strong to take up the deficit that the U.S. is using by moving their troops. And so, in the spring of 72, North Vietnam has a pretty strong attack against South Vietnam. And it's actually turned away by the South Vietnamese. It's mostly an offensive. It gets beaten back. And Nixon is now fresh off of repelling this, uh, this attack, mainly by the South Vietnamese, who repelled the attack by North Vietnam. Uh, there's not too many American soldiers there left. There are some, though. He's off of hitting two slam bag big old home runs with Russia and China, who he feels maybe the two big communist countries can pressure the smaller uh, communist country into a settlement with the U.S. Uh, the agreement finally does come in January of 1973 after the so-called Christmas bombing, which is basically where the U.S. really amps up bombing on North Vietnam to tell them, hey, we're serious, don't screw around. Um, and it's a, it's, the treaty is signed. As you see here, there's a Henry Kissinger shaking hands. I believe he gets a Nobel Peace Prize for this one, but he gives it away. He doesn't think too much of it. Uh, basically, the plan is North Vietnam is supposed to recognize the sovereignty in South Vietnam and also never invade Saigon. Uh, that's the promise. That lasts for about two years. Within two years, we go over to the next slide, it's become pretty evident that the U.S. is not interested in protecting the South of Vietnam. Um, there's little surprise or outcry when in 1975 the North invades South Vietnam. Uh, this is a fairly famous picture of one of the last helicopters leaving the U.S. Embassy in Saigon. Uh, the North Vietnamese take over Saigon. They rename it Ho Chi Minh City after Ho Chi Minh. Uh, fun fact, everybody I know from Vietnam doesn't call it Ho Chi Minh City. It had been Saigon for centuries. They still call it Saigon, but officially it's Ho Chi Minh City. But the main thing I want you to realize is there's no two ways around this. The U.S. did not win the Vietnam War. You could argue with the Korean War, which is still in a ceasefire, technically. The U.S. didn't lose. You know, we South Korea still exists, and it's doing pretty well financially. Uh, that's not the case in Vietnam. Vietnam is unified. The communists take over Vietnam completely. Communists are still in control to this day. So a lot of American soldiers died. This is actually fairly high um, rates of death for American soldiers. It's one of the deadliest conflicts for U.S. soldiers. Um, it's not as high as like World War II or the Civil War or anything, but it's, it's fairly high. And it seems like these soldiers died for nothing. This gave America a complex. It gave America a complex that maybe... Just because we have the nuclear bomb, just because we're as strong and we're America and we have a lot of money, we just wasted a lot of money for nothing. A lot of people died for nothing. And this gives America a complex, which exists for a while. You could argue till the Gulf War, possibly even longer. The idea that America has gotten involved for really no purpose whatsoever. Still, the fall of Saigon happens in Richard Nixon's second term. Actually, it doesn't even happen in the second term. It happens in the term of somebody else, which we're going to talk about next year. Next class, <laughs> not next year, next class. 1972 is an election year. Go over one slide. And it looks like Nixon's looking pretty strong. You can say a lot of stuff about Nixon. 
And Nixon is not a very popular president. Uh, there is some scholarship about him that's changing. But it's hard to deny what he's able to do in foreign policy, particularly because he is such anti-communist. And it looked like he is cruising towards a very easy victory in 1972. In fact, it's a huge victory. It's one of the largest electoral college victories in U.S. history. But two years after being re-elected, he's out of office. And why that happens? Well, you're going to hang. You're going to find out about it in next class. So that being said, uh, I want you to look over those sources. Um, hey, be sure to volunteer for discussion leadership. Uh, you're going to see a couple of different things. You're going to read Richard, Richard Nixon's acceptance speech. Kind of compare it with George Walsh's campaign speech. Also, you're going to see some of Richard Nixon's 1968 ads. Uh, see how bleak they are. Look at how chaotic and on the verge of ruin Nixon is showing the U.S. to be. Finally, you'll watch a quick video of Richard Nixon in China. Uh, look at what he's doing. Look at the posturing. How does detente kind of not mesh with his campaign promises or kind of the tone of his campaign? So that being said, I uh, hope you all enjoy this one. Uh, this is Dr. Stuart Tully. Have a good one.